Let's start with the book of Judges. We're going to do like we did last week. We're going to look at the infograph on the back. Now, this infograph, I do want to make a notation on it. The people who, who create this are listed on it. I'm not even going to say the name of the, uh, of the entity that makes this. And the reason I don't is because I don't want to I don't want to endorse it because there's some things that they don't do so well. Their, their study of uh, the atonement, where they land on the atonement on hell itself is a little bit kind of like, where did you get that from? But what they do excel at is infographs. What they do excel at is laying out the literary form or format of any book in a visual context so that we can look at it and go, okay, I I think I got a better idea of what's going on in the big picture of this book. So I just want to uh, make note of that um, so that we don't, you'll notice as I've, uh, in the last four and a half years that um, I've been preaching here at the church, I reference men less and less because I'm afraid of, as I find out more about these theologians, everyone's got skeletons in their closet. Everyone's got something that you go, oh, where'd you get that from? And I'm sure I've got skeletons in my own closet. So anyway, I'm just letting you know that um, please don't look at anything that uh, even this book, as wonderful as this book is with all of the godly men, I can't say that you should follow any one of these men to the degree that you should be following God, obviously. Okay, well, with that, let's look at what they do well and take a look at it and see if we can get a better understanding. So top left is where it starts. And then it goes crazy, so you're going to have to let me uh, walk you through this. Um, we've got the, uh, the remembrance uh, uh, of Joshua and how he has uh, completed the conquest. Um, at least to the when we say conquest, we're talking about God doing the fighting. So it's really not an Israelite conquest. It's God's conquest. And they have control over the land. That's all they have right now is control over the land. They have not driven out their enemies yet like they should. And we're going to see that in a little bit. The, um, so... Um, God is, uh, you see the picture there, uh, it says there, obey the commands of, of the Torah. God is going to use this idea of a set-apart people. They're, they're set apart because they, look, uh, because they obey God and therefore look so different in a culture that has been perverted by human sinfulness that God will use this message of obedience to the Torah to draw the people to God himself, because when you are not obeying God, you have complete chaos and unrighteousness. You have a distinction, and that the people of the world will look and go, we want that righteousness. Who's giving you that? Who is the God that leads you in that? So that's the, the whole idea of what God has, uh, has designed um, Israel to be as a blessing unto the peoples. Now that blessing we talked about is going to, we're going to see that word blessing really morphed out into a deliverer, into someone who saves, and eventually what you'll see, the ultimate uh, uh, blessing that God uses Israel for is to produce or come out of the lineage of Abraham, the Savior of the world. So that, that theme of blessing is going to continue as we go through the Bible. Okay, <clears throat> you move to the right at the top third of the page. You'll see it says uh, R.I.P. Joshua, or Josh. And so now we're moving on, and you've got the Israel. What we see here is Israel's total failure in Judges. And so this is, this is kind of the, the theme, unfortunately, of what's going on. Um, and what happens is every time Israel fails, God is going to create, if you look to the right of the word Judges there, he's going to bring about 
a judge. And notice it has a, a picture, two pictures. One on the left that has a line through it. It's a picture of what we would think of when we think of a judge. Someone in a robe uh, um, pronouncing justice uh, over a, uh, a, a dispute of some sort. Um, and then you've got, he's got the picture to the right. It has uh, a man, it looks like he's in uh, battle array. He's got an axe and, a, and a, a shield that he's wielding, or the sword would be what he's wielding, a shield that he's holding. And that he's, what he's, the author's trying to suggest here, the, 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 the producers of this infograph, is that, look, the judges are not what we think of judges. They don't stay in buildings and pronounce judgment on issues. God is giving these judges a new understanding of what their role will be. And they, they become deliverers of the oppressed people of Israel. So when you think about that, yes, they are judges. They judge over the people, but God raises them up to the role of a deliverer. And we start to hear that theme of deliverer uh, in, uh, by way of a, a judge. And you can see right below it, you, um, with the judges, he brings an empowerment of God's spirit. But it doesn't mean, notice there's a negative, excuse me, there's an equal sign with a slash through it. It doesn't mean or it's not equal to endorsement of human choices. When I was first reading the Bible, I, it was really confusing to hear about these these people that God chose, and wherever you are in the Bible, and some of the things you do, they do, and you go, how do you make that square in your mind? This is supposed to be a godly person, and they do X, Y, or Z. I mean, look at the, the uh, King David um, and some of the choices he made in his life. So when you see these, know that their actions are descriptive. They're not prescriptive. We don't equate them with, oh, this is what a, a good judge would do. No, this is not what a good judge would do. And in, in many of the cases, you'll see God use them, but he uses them in spite of them. And that's a progressive understanding. The, the, the first of the judges are, are okay. We're going to see that. And as the judges continue through the book of Judges, they get progressively more Canaanite-like. We're going to see that the, uh, the leadership of Israel turns into the Canaanites. That's the sad demise of, Israelites, uh, of the Israelites. Uh, nation underneath uh, uh, the judges. Okay, so to the right there, you've got be warned, um, and, and what he's talking about is the book. I would not choose this book to be the re bedtime reading for my children. I wouldn't want them to uh, go to sleep with these images in their minds. They would have, you would have little ones in your bed very quickly as their eyes close and they dwell on what was learned from the, the, the reading on that particular evening. It's disturbing and violent. It's a tragic tale. And it's a tale of where Israel becomes the uh, Canaan or Canaanites. The Israelite people become the Canaanites, and it's, it's sad. Um, so now let's drop down to the uh, introduction, which is the second third of this infograph. And it's chapters one and two. You've got the Canaanites. And let me do this. Let me ask you to open up your Bibles, or if you have your phone, you can uh, uh, get to... Uh, judges 1 and 2, because we're all going to take a look at those, and we're going to do a little bit of reading. Do we have a mic somewhere? Yeah. You do have one? You want? Thank you, Mark. Because I want to make sure that we understand that the introduction here is extremely helpful to understand the book of Judges. So uh, you've got the uh, Canaanite people. There's a picture there of the Canaanite people, and then a listing of the tribes they're supposed to be, it says, a blank people, and it's really hard to see because it scratched out the word in that little box. 
under chapter 1. Well, it used to say holy, and then it gets scratched out, just the people. In fact, they're, they act more like the Canaanites. And that's because they fall into, they don't get rid of the Canaanite people as they were told to. They didn't drive them out. And so you have the continuation of the moral corruption and the child sacrifice. So you can, again, you can see that under chapter 1 on the infograph on the back of the handout. Now let's take a look at Judges in your Bible. I just want you to see the first two chapters are, um, uh, like I said, an introduction. We've got a little bit about what's going on in here, and I want to uh, point you to the latter portion uh, of chapter 1 in verses 27 to 34. It's the failure to complete the conquest. And what you have are each of the tribes failing to drive out the Canaanites that are in their allotted piece of land. That's what they've been told to do so that the pollution of their immorality doesn't work its way into the, to the Israelite uh, life, the lifestyle, and into the nation, into the people of God. It will do the destructive work of turning out the light, and it becomes just as dark as the, the, the people out in the world in their immorality. So then you hit chapter 2 of Israel's disobedience, which is unfortunate. We continue to see it. Um, and it lists it there. Uh, I don't want to go into detail at that point. Uh, and then in the death of Joshua, it covers in uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. And then I want to finish out. I do want us to read, uh, because this really gives the picture of the totality of the book that lies ahead um, in Judges. So, uh, Mark, will you just have anybody who wants to, uh, to read? Uh, we'll do it by paragraph so I don't... Uh, There's just two paragraphs there that we can read from. Uh, Anybody want to read uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and then I'll have someone else do 16 through 22. Anybody want to read that, 11 through? Okay, we've got Jamie. or um, um, We'll just go with Jamie right now. Confirm that was 11 through... The end of the paragraph break, so 15. I'm, I'm looking at my ESV. It happens to break at 15. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, or Yahweh, and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm, and as Yahweh had warned... And as Yahweh had sworn to them, and they were in a terrible distress. Okay, and when you hear the word uh, Yahweh, you'll notice that every time he said that, it was when the Lord, the word, all in caps, L-O-R-D, was spoken. All that is is Yahweh is the uh, Hebrew uh, translation or uh, uh, way of saying Lord. So if you hear us say that, that's just because we're trying to, we studied as a church what that name meant, the self-existing one, the creator. And so we, we use it 
uh, in the way that the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew word was written, and that's why we use the word Yahweh. Um, there's nothing special about it, meaning that we don't mean to be, suggest that we're any better than anyone else. It just gives us a more tangible tie to who the God of the Israelites, who are, uh, are is still today our God, uh, what his name is. Okay, so chapters uh, 2, verses 16 to 23. Um, anybody? Okay, right here. Oh, Sorry about that. <laughs> Twice I missed her. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because his people have transgressed my commandment, my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Okay. Um, when she, uh, It was talked about back in verse 7, let's see, no, verse 16. Then Yahweh raised up judges. Just so we get some context, in Deuteronomy, this is the book that, uh, the end of the Torah, um, and the book that we see Joshua, excuse me, we see Moses die in, uh, in Deuteronomy, which literally means second law. He's re-giving the law, he's, and he's giving additional law based on this being a new generation. They're facing what they're going to face in this conquest. So there's additional stuff. In the context of Deuteronomy, we see God establish judges for the nation of Israel. So when we read in Judges about judges, we shouldn't be a surprise because God created that position in Deuteronomy, and they were local judges designed to uh, bring about righteousness over a geographic area. So if you had a dispute, well, what do I do? Do I do this or do I do that? Then the judge would, would listen to it and go... This is what, is what honors God. Again, so when we were reading the book of Judges, we're seeing God raise a judge up from a geographic area, and he's going, this judge is now going to take a mostly military role in overcoming the oppression from outsiders or from the Canaanites, the ones they were supposed to get rid of, and they didn't. Um, and that role is to deliver them from this oppression. So the judges, have, when raising up is this idea of giving them more of a... Give, a let, allowing them to take on the role as deliverer. So they take on a, an additional role. And we, can, we know from the study of the Bible and this Old Testament theme study that we see these concepts growing in understanding. That's what judge, one of the things Judges does. It gives us this idea of uh, God is our ultimate judge. 
God is our deliverer, our themes also in the book. Okay, so now look at uh, the chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 falls right underneath the number uh, chapter 1 in the infogram graph. Um, and um, again, above in chapter 1, you've got the failure to drive out uh, uh, the evil Canaanites that, have, that still lived in the land. They didn't have control over it. The, the Israelites have control, but they are failing to drive them out. And therefore, they're failing to be a holy people. So what do we see in chapter 2? This has been talked about. This book is set up to give us an idea of what the rest of the book is going to have. That's what an introduction does. And then the rest of the book is going to bear out what was suggested in the introduction. So you can see there, they have, if you'll see them on the top right, they are being oppressed by a, a actually, really, you should start with sin. They get into the sin of idolatry. Idolatry being they're worshiping other gods. Now, these are the people that God has set aside to worship him and given them the promised land. And they're worshiping other gods. In the land he gave them. He said he'd give them rest all around. If they would conquer their enemies, then they are allowing their enemies to stay there and pollute them and, and to get uh, them assimilated into their idolatry. And so we see that sin. And then we have an oppression. You can see the picture of the man standing over the top of and standing on the, the lowered man, the man on his knees. He's being oppressed, and he's being oppressed by uh, one of the Canaanite people. And then you see the repentance taking place, the, the weeping, realizing that they have done wrong, that, that, that their sin is ultimately against God himself. And God lifts up a deliverer. You see the, the picture of a judge now with a military object, a sword in their hands. And then there's a period of peace. But when you see that picture right there, the peace, you can see that the dotted line takes, that look, the man is looking over to the, uh, the idolatrous false god of the Canaanites. And once that ha- starts to happen, sin grows in the heart. Pretty soon you're doing that. You're going, you're chasing after that false god. And you, the cycle uh, goes over and over again. And notice, you may not have noticed this, that is not a, a, uh, a, a target, a bullet uh, uh, I can't, what am I trying to say? A uh, bullseye. There you go. That is actually a spiral inward or downward. You notice that? That's what the book of Judges is telling us. If you understand that, that Samson's the last judge, it should tip you off if this is a spiral downward. Samson is not a hero in the sense of a warrior for God. Samson is the picture of the last guy in the, in the toilet flush. That's what that's a picture of, unfortunately. And yet, we're going to deal with today, Samson is listed in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. And we're going to talk about how does that man, and there's actually three other judges there that you'll go, how do these people get into the hall of faith? And so we'll, we'll take a look at that. Okay, so let's look at the, uh, the main section uh, notice it's uh, chapter 3 through 16 is grouped together in the elongated pictures there. And if you'll notice, it says across the top of each of those columns, it says pretty good, okay, bad, and worse. This is the toilet flush we're heading for. So we start off with uh, chapter 3, Othniel uh, starts off pretty good. We have Ehud, and even the pretty good is pretty violent. I mean, you can see what's going on there. You've got Deborah. Can anyone remember who Deborah allowed or, or communicated to to say, hey, 
God has called you to fight these people. And this person said, nah, I'm not going alone. You've got to go with me. Do you remember who that person was? Anybody? All right. Very good. Barack. Um, so um, guess what? Barack, the cowardness of Barack is not what is listed, but there's something about Barack that he gets into the hall of faith of chapter 11 of Hebrews. And you go, really? God must be messed up to be doing that. It's Deborah that should be in there. Deborah's the one that was telling him, you better go because if, if you ask me to go, I'm going to get some of the glory and you're not going to get the glory that God designed for this. You're not going to do what God calls you to do. And so we, we have to, to figure out what's going on with, why did some of these people get into that, that book, under that hall of faith, if you will? Then we move to um, OK, and we have, under there, we have Gideon, um, only 300 men, and he's going to take on the whole Midianite nation with 300 men. And then underneath there, notice that there's a, a broken uh, section of the column, and it's got... Uh, uh, it says fellow Israelites, and it's pointing downward. It might look like they're sleeping. That's a picture of them killed. He murders them. And then we have uh, right next to him, you've got uh, a, a, the, an idol there, and he's got the whole nation of Israel um, worshiping an idol. So Gideon is, you notice he starts off this next grouping of uh, judges, if you will, into okay. I would even say that Gideon is the first of the real downfall. This is the big slide down the hill is Gideon. And then we continue with uh, Jephthah. Um, Jephthah is uh, in chapter 10 and 12 there. You see he's kind of this rugged looking man. Um, he is, in our day we would call him a warlord kind of thug. He is, he's doing his own thing and they know how, how strong he is. Um, so they go and reach out to him. He's a, in other words, they think that his brutalness, his, his brute nature, will help them in defeating the, the Ammonites. And he, uh, it does, God does bless him. God does do work through him in spite of him. And we see that he, they defeat them. But he does the one thing that, interesting enough, I don't know, sometimes... Religion will try and sterilize their superhero. Well, how do I put this? Not sterilize. Well, kind of sterilize. They will try and make their heroes look better than they are. I'll just put it that way. And I don't know where you stand. If you think that the, the daughter that he promised, whatever greets me, Jephthah, whatever greets me upon coming home, I will sacrifice to the Lord. What did he think was going to come out of his door? A donkey? And what comes out of his door? But his daughter. And it says that he took her life. And I've been part of theology that says, well, that's just metaphorical. You know, Jephthah is so far away from the God that's supposed to be his God, he doesn't even know his God. This is what would be expected of the uh, Canaanite gods. You would do this to honor them, to, 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 to kill your own. Our God doesn't do that. Our God is a righteous God who has made the image bearers. We know as other human beings and certainly our family members. And so he's so lost. He so doesn't know his God that he ends up killing her because he made a vow. And interesting enough, Jephthah is in the hall of faith. And you're going, serious? 
Nick, don't tell me anymore because this is just blowing my mind that these guys are all in this hall of faith. So we continue on. We get to worse in Samson, uh, verses uh, chapter 13 to 16, excuse me. And Samson, you know, we like Samson because he's strong. And if you're a little boy, you're thinking, man, I want to be Samson. I want to be able to take on anybody and do what, I, what I'm supposed to do. Well, he's not about what he's supposed to do. He's promiscuous. He's violent. He's incredibly arrogant. And we see his downfall. And in fact, uh, he, is, he has his eyes gouged out. He is nothing more than a, a slave to be mocked by the Philistines. And yet, in the end of his life, uh, he uses one last feat God allows him to use to destroy the enemy. And if you, you might be thinking, that's weird. Why the destruction of the enemy? All the judges were raised up to defeat the oppressors of Israel. God defeats our enemies. So we don't, don't be getting in this mindset of, you know, uh, I'll, I'll say it this way. Israel had an appreciation. Israel, even today, is a, has always been a nation that the, na- the other nations have wanted to oppress. They understand, they seek a day when they will no longer be an oppressed people. So when we understand enemies, we don't, sometimes we think because we're Americans, there are always people over there that we're going out to help out, whether it's World War I or World War II, we're, we're going to help out a nation over there. So we lose this concept of someone wanting to come in and destroy us. This is the picture of, we want to make sure that we have a biblical understanding of enemies. These people want to destroy you, wipe you out, kill you. So we see God being the one who, who is the destroyer of those that would oppress us. And who ends up in the hall of faith? Samson. Another confusing uh, picture of why, but I think in the end we'll understand. And then uh, as you get to 17 to 21, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in here. 17 to, well, I'll put it this way. Chapters 3 to 16 all deals with the leadership of Israel, the judges, and the judges get more and more corrupt. Then in the last uh, few uh, chapters of uh, the judges, 17 to 21, it's all about the people's corruption. And the people do the same toilet flush. They go the same direction, downward spile, and it just gets ugly, ugly, perverted, murder, sex. All of it is, is, in fact, if you'll notice there, it says very disturbing. And I would agree with that. So we have the, the corruption of the people of Israel in that. So... There's the picture of Judges, not a real pretty picture if you look at it from a narrative overview. Let's flip this over and take a look at some of the things. So we've got uh, the overview uh, underneath title. It's it's based on the principal character. Oh, that's interesting. Please forgive me. This obviously, I did not change this out. I was, oh, this is fascinating. I used an earlier version of this. When I printed, I used my earlier version. Sorry, guys. This was last week's as it related to Joshua, and it doesn't look like on this version I've got judges listing there. Judges, I'll just say this. Judges is about judges. Um, we, the authors also are anonymous. We don't know who they are. They're, they're referred to as historians, the ones that kept the truth. Interesting as it relates to the date the judges, because they're overlapping judges, because they're judges of geographic areas, you can actually have, and it is occurring, two judges in view, but they overlap in time, 
because one's judging in this in one particular area of Israel, and the other is judging in another area of Israel. So the, the time frame there is somewhat disputed by theologians on how, how far does it go. Some of the dating is difficult because you do end up with some overlap. Okay, let's get the themes. Uh, as it relates to themes, we have, uh, do you guys, I, I, a question I wanna ask, do you remember what was a major theme of Deuteronomy as it related to the covenant? Anybody remember what the major theme of Deuteronomy, remember this is the second giving of the law, Moses isn't going in, he's telling the people this is what you gotta do when you're going to the promised land. So the theme as it relates to covenant, Mark, it looks like uh, Jamie's got a uh, possible answer. Blessings and curses comes to my mind. Okay, but certainly he talks about blessings and cursings. Blessings and cursings because of what? Or what is he encouraging them to do so they don't go to cursings? You want to try that? So they, to follow the law, follow they the go. covenant. So Deuteronomy's goal, uh, the theme of Deuteronomy is covenant faithfulness. Um, that's that they will be faithful to the covenant that God said he will be faithful to. If you look at this picture of Judges, remember, it's pretty, pretty dark. But what happens every single time is God raises up a judge despite how evil they are. Though they are not keeping their covenant faithfulness, we learn that God does keep his covenant faithfulness. What a beautiful picture. I mean, you think of your own sin. Anybody in here have a repeated sin they seem to do? Hello, if you don't have your hand up, well, I know all you would have your hand up. But if you said no to me, it would be a red flag that, ooh, we got to go back to the, that arrogant Samson. Um, because we all have repeated sins. We all have propensities to repeat particular sins. And yet our God is patient and long-suffering with us and is, and is sanctifying us. Okay, so we have um, Israel's covenant faithfulness. You can see that underlined um, with the black bullet point there. The Israelites choose to be no different than the Canaanites. No distinction. No, Remember, holiness certainly means it has the component of being morally, or I'll, I'll just say moral, that you, that you adhere to the Torah. But holy has this overarching understanding of being set apart, distinct, different. Well, they, they're not set apart, distinct, different. They look just like the Canaanites, and they're not the Canaanites. Then we've got God's covenant faithfulness. Yahweh is long-suffering, powerful. That's I.E. Um, he is the one that's capable of delivering them, who raises up judges to deliver them, to relieve the oppression of his people despite the, their breach of the covenant. We saw that. We read some of that. Um, and then we see in the open bullet point there, it says, Yahweh's pity was designed to motivate the Israelites to turn back from, any idea? Anybody want to take a, a guess? The word I'm looking for starts with I. Idolatry. Very good. We do that. Sorry, Mark. No, no microphone necessary. Um, and so they're turned back from idolatry to back to God, Yahweh. No, they're God. Interesting. Do you hear the theme of repentance there? So we can see that this is, a, this is the kernel of that theology of repentance in this book of Judges that we're seeing, although it's an ugly downward spiral, the spiral does have in it, each and every time, repentance. So we take encouragement from that, that it's repentance that reunites us with God, even in our day-to-day -day interaction. When we have fallen to sin, where we are called to rush into the throne room of grace to repent so that none of our sin hinders our fellowship with our Lord.
And he doesn't say, well, Nick, this is number 121 today. Just kidding. Uh, but he doesn't say, he doesn't count. He says, yes, I forgive you because you're my child. I do this because of what my son did in, in making it possible for you to even ask me to forgive you. All right, so trivia. Which judge starts the downward spiral of judges? I said the answer. Who wants to say the answer? Who wants to see if they remember it? Anybody? Gideon. Very good. Gideon is superhero and super uh, villain at the same time. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, um, which judge is actually considered the anti-judge and uh, Pastor Pete? And uh, where's Gerald? Gerald uh, must have, I think he might be helping out somewhere else. Gerald can't answer because we were having this conversation. Unless somebody can't get it, there is actually an anti-judge. And, and when I say that, he's really not a judge, but he's listed in the book of Judges. Anybody know who that might be? You've got the chart below you. You could look at some of the things on the chart. It talks about the major judge, the minor judge. Israel does evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And then which are the ones that we are told that are cry out? And uh, um, Yahweh provides a judge, and we can see some of this. You see the different uh, years of oppression and peace. You might notice there's one judge that has a plus sign. In the, uh, that, so it's all oppression, and there is no peace. Do you happen to see the one that has it? Anybody want to give it to me now? That's Abimelech. And does anyone remember Abimelech is a name and it's a title at the same time? We saw it in the book of Judges a few times. Excuse me, in the book of Genesis. Anybody remember what Abimelech means? Abimelech means either. It has, and I'll tell you which one it does for our context today. It either means my father is king or father of the king. So Abimelech sees Gideon as being the king, though he is never referred to as king. He perverts that, and Abimelech is the one that kills his 70 brothers, the offspring of his dad, to make sure that he is king. He's the only one in the book that has the word ruled or reigned over in, underneath his, over, uh, in describing his leadership role. All the others have God raised up. This one rules and reigns by way of murder. And then what's interesting, this judge, rather than having the Holy Spirit fill them and, and empower them, God sends a deceiving spirit, a spirit to cause and incite the, the leadership of Shechem, that he went to the leadership of Shechem and says, hey, what do you want? Do you want 70? He doesn't say something. Do you want me, my brothers to rule over you, or do you want me? Because I know you, and you and me are brothers. We're kin. And so they say, well, you. You know, I, they're so corrupt. You. And so what does he do? He goes and he kills the 70. One gets away. Jotham gets away. Um, and so what does God do? He puts a, a spirit of, of enmity between uh, Abimelech and the lords of Shechem. And what happens when he at the, at the very end there, he says to Abimelech, excuse me, Abimelech has is, is got the lords, all the leadership, the house of, of Shechem in the, in the tower. And he's going he's gonna to destroy the peop, all the people in the tower that are running from them. They're having this ongoing hatred towards 
uh, Abimelech uh, towards the lords of Shechem that gave him the power initially. So there's back and forth. And what happens? How does Abimelech die? Something happens out a window. Do you remember, anybody remember how he, he, he dies? The woman drops a rock on his head, um, but he doesn't want to say, people to say that he was killed by a woman, so he has a person closest to him, his assistant, kill him with the sword. Absolutely. He doesn't want the history. He doesn't want it to go down in history. Oh, our God is so just. At times, he just lets his justice flow. What he doesn't want, God makes sure it's, it is absolutely inscripturated. He goes down in history as the one who was killed by an old woman throwing a, a millstone out the window and cracks his head open. And so it's ever to re, be remembered, and we can see that justice. Ironically, and I believe this is true, one of the theologians I was studying said this. Now remember, Abimelech is the one that pronounced himself king. This is before we get to Samuel. When the people start wanting a king in the likeness of the other nations around them. So this is actually Israel's first king in some sense. He's a forced king. He's not a king that, he, that uh, is a king that God would choose. What is Saul? Is Saul the guy, that, the king that God would choose for Israel? Or the king, a king like they would, that, like, that images the kings of the other nations? Well, I'll, I'll give you the answer. Saul is not the ideal king. And God gives the people a king that looks good on the outside, but on the inside, he's a mess, and he's full of sin. So, interesting, what does Saul do on the mount when he's been struck with the, with the arrows, and he's dying, and he says to his armor bearer, kill me, so that I don't, it's, it doesn't go down in history that I die at the hands of these evil Philistines. And we are made to know forever that, no, Saul, you were a, a, a king after your own heart, not after my heart like David. And so you have in history, you are remembered as the king that, that went south, the king that did not follow, was not a, a true king after God's heart. So it's just interesting that you see these connections all right, I'm going to leave you with this question. We've got about five minutes. Um, how, why, or why do you suppose, let's get some theology going, that the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we know as the hall of faith. You read it, it's all these men and women that are of godly, demonstrate uh, faith in God. Why do you suppose Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah get into the Hebrews hall of faith under Hebrews 11.32. Anybody want to read that one so we can see it there? Hebrews 11.32. All right, so um, uh, PJ has it if we want to give the mic to PJ. Hebrews 11.32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Okay. So we know at least four of those men, the, four, the men that I speak of that are in Judges, that are, 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 are 
morally inept, corrupt in some way, why do you suppose they made it into the Hall of Faith? And think in theological, bigger, broader terms. God, we've got uh, Brandon over there. I think there's an assurance of salvation to be seen in it, because, like, thankfully, none of our lives are plastered in great detail of all the sins and evil we did throughout our lives in the Bible or something for everyone to see. And, I mean, it's not like... Samson did some really bad things. Like, I haven't done what Samson did, per se, right? But, like, when you look at it and you're like, well, if by faith he was saved by faith I can be saved. Like, I don't, I don't need to have this, like, perfect, shiny life where I did everything right, you know, and I think that's really encouraging. Okay, so let me build on something you said, and I think this is what it is, and I'll close it up now because I don't want to uh, go over. God uses imperfect men that, in fact, are men that are corrupted by sin, and he uses them just in spite of who they are. But these men that are corrupted by who they are, are corrupted by their own sin, I'll say it that way, end up in the hall of faith to point out the truth, the, the, the one point that you made there, that our faith comes from God himself. He is the giver of faith. Ultimately, these men did what they were called to do, whether it was uh, Gideon who overthrew the, the, uh, the, the enemy with the 300 men, Barak, who said he wouldn't go unless uh, Deborah would go for him. Um, Barak did ultimately go um, and defeat the enemy. Samson ultimately used the very end of his life, the one time he gets it right, to destroy more of the enemy, the Philistines, than he did at any other time of his life when he, when he was doing it in the arrogance of himself. And he begged God in the midst of being having his eyes poked out just give me the strength, I'm paraphrasing, to do what you called me to do one time right, basically, is this prayer. And I'm adding a little bit in there, and he does it. He pushes the pillars apart, and the whole building comes on top of the Philistines. And his role as a deliverer in destroying the enemy did occur. And then we see in Jephthah, this is, although, this is where you got that tension. Christianity has a tension to it. You think of Jephthah. Even though Jephthah vowed a vow that would be uh, that of a Canaanite vow to destroy his daughter, he vowed a vow to, his, to the God to the degree that he knew of the God of Israel, and he kept that vow. That's a hard one for me to, to process. It's hard for all of us because we know that we wouldn't ever want to do that for our children. But my point is, there's, there are... you. God uses us in spite of us. God is the initiator. He is the one who uh, makes it so that our faith care is, our faith does what it's supposed to do. And back to your statement, Brandon, our faith does save us because God is the one that does the work of faith in us, despite who we are. Uh, PJ, did you want to comment on something real quick? I was just, I was just gonna, uh, uh, in agreement with you, and also tweak a bit of what Brandon said. Um, Brandon, you said you referenced like, well, maybe I haven't had their life, but my sin still hasn't put out. My sin's still bad. I think we actually are, are a lot closer to their lives than we maybe think. Um, 
based on the teachings of Christ. And even in Hebrews 11, right after these, these questionable judges, it lists David. Well, David raped a woman by the position of his power who was married, a young girl, murdered a man to cover it up, tried to force him to sleep with his wife to make it look like it was pregnancy. This is a man that's considered a hero of the faith. His actions sound like they belong in the book of Judges. And then you think about Jephthah. And so for us, if I think about like, well, if I've had lust in my heart, what have I done? Well, if I've had anger towards my children, how much different is that than what, I, what Jephthah has done with his daughter? And so I think, I think the, there is some supreme wickedness here, and yet I think there is nothing new under the sun, and we, our hearts are not so much better than theirs apart from Christ. The benefit we have, obviously, is the Holy Spirit and the process of sanctification, and yet there is none of these men that we should be so smug as to look at and say we are better in any way because Christ has taught us if we have anger in our heart, we have committed murder. If we have lust in our heart, we have committed adultery. We're not better. We are just in need of Christ as Jephthah, as any of these um, men who praise the Lord despite them had enough faith um, given to them by God. Thank you. And I don't think you were calling Brandon Smug. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we can see clearly the, the, the literary layout of your book because when we understand it literary in a later, literary format, we come to a place where we can see things that we would miss when we're down in the weeds. We can see the, the, the theology that you want to teach us, whether it's repentance or the fact that you raise up a deliverer in, in the, in, by way of someone who is human and how we can understand that that was ultimately your son. Jesus Christ, we get to appreciate even in the mess of who we are, in fact, because of the mess of who we are, we get to see and appreciate who you are, that you are perfect, that you are righteous, that you are holy, that you are long-suffering, that you are forgiving. And we thank you for who you are as our God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.